Previously on the yellow car. Um, in hindsight, when you put together some of the other facts that came out later with Effie's neighbors complaining about yelling and arguing coming from her apartment, that kind of makes sense that maybe she was getting pushed around. I think my mom found out stuff she shouldn't. I remember saying to her that I don't like the people that she's hanging out with and I want her to get away from them, that I think they're bad people. And her comment was, I know and you don't know how bad. We have proof that within 30 days of the murder, this person of interest went to the home of the person we believe is the shooter. Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic subject matter. Some people may find it disturbing. After Pune Gray came home from college to deal with the aftermath of her mother's murder, she started to have a gut feeling, call it an intuition, about the people she believed were actually responsible. My dad had already been arrested at this point. Her father, Mike Antazari, was in custody and was the only suspect being considered by investigators. But as Pune learned all about those disturbances and altercations that had reportedly happened at her mom's apartment leading up to her death, something happened that revved Pune's suspicions into full gear. Shortly after that, I received an anonymous call. An anonymous phone call. The person was definitely Iranian but he wouldn't give me his name. But what he did say is that he was a friend of my mom. And he also called our family home. He said to me that I was on the right track in terms of you know following up on the person that had been hitting and threatening my mom. And he said that person was also responsible for her homicide. And he gave me the person's name. The person identified by the anonymous caller was Frank Doe, the man Pune now believes hired the hit on her mom. I'm your host, Ashley Korslund. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. When my dad called um, from prison, I let him know what the caller had said and asked that he hire a private investigator to get eyes on the guy that the caller said was responsible for my mom's homicide. And he did that. So he hired a private investigator and that private investigator tracked down this guy and started following him. Pune gave me the private investigator's log from 1989. It includes detailed notes of where Frank Doe went, including addresses, times, and dates. And there are a lot of photos of him, too. So the private investigator took a series of photos, wrote down notes about the surveillance he'd conducted. Most of the PI's notes seemed pretty mundane, except for one instance that wouldn't become significant for decades. A meeting on a summer day in June of 1989, just a month after Effie and Tazari's murder, when Frank Doe went to visit John Doe, the man whose DNA would later be linked to the crime. At the time, Pune didn't think much of it. Because we didn't know 
you know, back in 1989, it's like, okay, so what if you went to this guy's house? I mean, people go to people's homes all the time. It's not that big of a deal. But nonetheless, fast forward 31 years, and um, we were on the hunt for the shooter because we knew that the lab had collected uh, foreign male DNA. The DNA didn't match my dad. It didn't match my brother. So, and it did not match the, the person who the caller said was responsible for my mom's murder. So then the question was, well, who does it go to and um, who actually killed my mom? With the DNA not matching Mike Antazari, Effie's estranged husband, or Frank Doe, she wasn't sure where to go from there. But it all started to make sense in late 2019, when Pune and her team got just the information they needed. A statement by Frank Doe, the flashpoint that would connect everything. It was a series of events that happened where we started asking questions from this particular person. And he, I don't think he realized what all we knew, but he um, inadvertently gave us the answer. You see, Pune and her team had poured through all the private investigators' notes again, revisiting the names of all the people Frank Doe had contact with in the weeks after Effie's murder. Then, Pune's attorneys questioned Frank Doe about all the people the private investigator had spotted him with. And when the attorneys got to John Doe's name, Frank's answer stunned them. He claimed he didn't know John Doe, said they had never even met. And they wouldn't have any other reason to be doing business that you know of? They're claiming they don't know each other. Today they're claiming they don't know Today each other. Today they, they're claiming they have no idea who each other is and have never known each other. The fact that they denied knowing each other is what turned our attention to this particular person and, and getting his DNA. Because they were lying. They were both lying. So what's, why were they lying? Pune speculates what the private investigator captured back in 1989 was Frank Doe meeting with John Doe for a payoff in the murder. Perhaps the biggest break in Pune's investigation in more than 30 years is the DNA apparently linking John Doe to Effie's body. My name is Chris D. Peterson. The man who helped make this breakthrough discovery is Pune's private investigator, Chris Peterson. I'm the owner of Peterson Investigations. He collected John Doe's DNA for testing in 2020. But I've been the owner of that company since I retired from the Multnomah County Sheriff's in 1997. Been actively involved with PI work since 1997. Peterson spent 26 years as a deputy sheriff in Multnomah County, Oregon, which encompasses the city of Portland. It's just across the river from where Effie was murdered in Vancouver, Washington. I remember reading about the case and hearing about it in the, in the Vancouver News, but I had no relationship with the Epsosari case as a police officer. At the time of Effie's death, Peterson was on the verge of one of the biggest breakthroughs of his career. He was investigating the 1990s strangling of a woman named Tanya Bennett. 
Peterson helped exonerate a couple who was wrongly imprisoned for Bennett's murder and helped identify the real killer, a man named Keith Hunter Jesperson, a notorious serial killer dubbed the Happy Face Killer, who raped and murdered eight women in the 1990s. We got them released from prison, uh, which is pretty much unheard of. And after someone's been convicted, and they got a lot of news media coverage in Portland, and I think that was the reason Pune came to me. She came to me before I was retired and wanted me to work for her. I said, I can't work for you until I retire. I'll be glad to get involved once I retire. And uh, that's, I think, why she hired me is because we had got two people out of prison that were wrongfully convicted, and she was hoping I could do the same thing for her. So if you were Pune looking for a private investigator to take the lead on your mom's case, Peterson was your guy. By the early 2000s, a retired Peterson found himself working side by side with Pune, poring over detail after detail. Pune and I have uh, flown to Pittsburgh on this case. We've spent days and days and days together interviewing people together. I've done a lot of interviews without Pune, but it's been a kind of a Chris and Pune investigation from my perspective. What has this case been like to work on over the last two decades or so? <clears throat> Um, it's been pretty intense. Pune has got a drive like I've never seen in any human before. And she has wanted every possible loose end uh, chased. And sometimes it's frustrating because I think they are very loose ends that probably won't take any take us anywhere. Sometimes the loose ends became dead ends, but other times they resulted in pivotal pieces of evidence to support their case. And Pune and her team have put together a solid one. They've spent hundreds of thousands of hours compiling this information over the last 30 years. There are so many details to this case that even I still can't fully grasp two years into this project. To be honest, I've struggled with how much detail to give you at the risk of confusing you along the way. It's a fine line between cluing you in to important pieces of the story and getting off track on details that, in the end, might not really matter. This is all to say that I'm trying to figure out how to clearly explain Pune's theories on the motive behind this murder. Why this group of people would go to such effort to kill Effie and seemingly frame her estranged husband. If I'm totally transparent with you, this part has been the hardest for me to write. I've typed and erased and started over again probably a hundred times. But before I dig into the two big elements of motive Pune believes she's uncovered, I'm going to do my best to tie up a few loose ends I've touched on throughout this podcast, because I think these few details are crucial to her case against this group, even though they don't necessarily fit into a neat and tidy timeline. First, let's talk about the gun found in Mike Antazari's car on the night of the murder. As I've told you before, detectives searched Mike's car twice. The first was in the parking lot of the hospital in Portland the afternoon of May 1st. Detectives didn't find a gun. Hours later, though, they searched again at Mike's house, and they found Mike's 38 Special under the floor mat behind the passenger seat. I asked private investigator Chris Peterson about it. 
This is something I've never been able to make sense of is the fact that the detectives had missed the gun on the first search or didn't see it um, if it was there. Well, I, I've searched probably thousands of cars. And I, if I was working a homicide case and I, and I was given permission to search a car, I would never have missed a 38 underneath a floor mat. If you're working on a case, I can't imagine how you would miss a gun under a floor mat. One could easily chalk this up to an unfortunate mistake by a detective or just an odd coincidence. But to Chris Peterson and Pune, this part of the story is too significant, too irregular, and it contributes to some of their theories about what really happened in 1989. It all ties in with the strange occurrences at Mike Antazari's home in the months before Effie's murder. As Mike testified in trial, he had received several threatening calls from a man with a Middle Eastern accent, as well as unexplained hang-up phone calls. Mike had also told Pune about some break-ins at his house. There had been um, break-ins that if someone was coming in through the back gate into the house and Things on his desk had been moved around. He didn't think it was my mom um, because my mom had a key and she wouldn't need to come in or break the back patio lock, you know, to get into the house. He also said that he had come home to find his gun sitting on his um, office desk. And he, he thought that was really odd. A theory Pune has developed over the years is this. The killers broke into Mike's house and stole his 38. Their plan was to use the gun to kill Effie and Mike and stage it as a murder-suicide. Their original plan was not to commit the murder on Monday, May 1st, but the Saturday before. That's the day the author of the sworn statement mentioned in episode 6 saw a yellow car at Effie's daycare and two men inside harassing her. And on a Saturday, there was nobody there. So if you're going to commit a homicide, that would have been the place to do it. But when the dad of Effie's daycare student stopped by, that changed everything. They had taken my dad's gun and intended on using it on my mom that day. Except for a witness saw everything. So I think they switched to plan B. That's what I think. The killer's plan B wound up being two days later, Monday, May 1st. Pune theorizes that after shooting Effie outside her apartment, the shooter's next stop was Mike's house. And I think what changed that morning is my dad got up really early. He wasn't where they thought he was going he to be. He wasn't going to be where they thought he was supposed to be. Because he had the chest issue. He went to the hospital. Or he went to work and then the hospital. He went to work and then the hospital. So she believes the group then decided to plant the gun in Mike's car during that 30 to 60 minute window when his car was not under police surveillance at his lawyer's office to frame him for the murder. But here's the question I have about this. If Pune doesn't believe her dad's gun was the murder weapon in the first place, then why would the killers put Mike's gun back in his car? And what gun did they actually use in the murder? I mean, why not just use your dad's gun on your mom, though? Because you don't think your dad's gun was the murder weapon. So you think they put it back and then used a different gun. Is that right? Yes. Why do you think they would go through that trouble and not just use your dad's gun? in the shooting. 
You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know, right? I mean, I don't know the exact answer to that. Hopefully we'll get that from the shooter someday in terms of what their plan was. But whatever, whatever the case was, there was a change of plans. And the defense back then, you know, we hired a private investigator to look into this. He was stumped with the same thing. He believed that my father's gun was taken by these people, that they intended on using it on my mom and setting up my father, but there was a change of plans. Um, it might have had something to do with the fact that my dad left so early in the morning, um, you know, cause he said he was up at five o'clock. So, I mean, this homicide was very well carried out and there was thought put into it. And as for why the detectives would search Mike's car a second time, Pune has a theory for that as well. Somebody tipped them off. In addition to the break-ins and the harassing phone calls, Mike Antazari also reported receiving two threatening letters. One of them was typed and appeared as though it was from Effie. Now this threat letter arrives, it's postmarked December 1988. Um, it arrives at my dad's house. That was just a few months before the murder. The letter says, I will not let you live if judge takes your side. You better give up. It's not anything my mom would do. It doesn't sound like my mom. What would be the point of sending this to your dad? Well, <laughs> most married couples who are going through a divorce who get a letter like this, they take it to their lawyer and they'd say, tell her to stop. This isn't okay. But by doing that, what has my dad done? He's shown there is a threat of violence or problems between the two of them when none existed. To show that there's strife between the two? Is that what you think this is going at? Yeah, and ironically, the letter says, I will not let you live if judge takes your side. You better give up. Those statements are eerily similar to what the police, the detective was told that I said. She's talking about what Jane Doe told investigators. She's the woman Pune believes hired the hit on Effie, along with Frank Doe. That's Jane's business partner. You might recall that shortly after the murder, Jane Doe told detectives that Pune allegedly said this to Effie. If you win in the divorce, you will die. If dad wins, you will lose. Pune says she never said that to Effie. It is curious that Jane Doe would tell police something very similar to what was typed on a private letter sent to Mike Antazari five months before the murder. In your opinion, yes. though, this, the suspects did this to set up your dad? Yes. And it's very creative. If you're going to commit a homicide and you know you want to preempt the homicide and you know you want the husband to take the rap, absolutely you send a letter like this. Here's Chris Peterson. Do you think that the people she believes were involved, were they that sly, that um, orchestrated and sneaky that you think they, they believe they never would get caught? Or would they have messed up at some point along the way to where you guys would find out a way to prove it? Somebody did an incredible job of killing Effie at this because 
the evidence that we desperately wanted to find for years and years and years has been very elusive. So I got to say that the people that were behind this homicide did a phenomenal job of covering their tracks. It wasn't sloppy. It wasn't sloppy. When you look at this case as a whole and all the evidence and all the facts, 32 years later, do you think Mike Entazari killed Effie? I do not. I know all of this is a lot to absorb, and I hope you're still with me here, because I'm about to dive into two potential motives in Effie's murder. These are the key parts of the entire case Pune has built against her group of suspects. You know, I've been doing this for 31 years, right? I pretty much went behind them and picked up every crumb they left, and they left quite a few. Here's the first possible motive. A wrongful death complaint filed on behalf of the estate of Effie Antazari in October of 2019 says this. New evidence shows that Effie was killed to keep her from exposing an Iranian international criminal conspiracy and that Mike was framed for her murder. It goes on to say that Effie and Mike were unique in the Iranian community because they were U.S. citizens. The Islamic Revolution of 1979 made it difficult for Iranians to immigrate to the U.S., which gave rise to a multi-million dollar passport fraud and identity theft industry. So they wanted your mom out of the picture? Once she found out, yes. So these are dangerous people? Very dangerous people. Extremely dangerous people. No one can explain this whole theory better than Pune, so I'm going to let her do most of the talking here. She's going to begin with what she and her team discovered when they first started investigating their group of suspects. And keep in mind, just like Effie and Mike, the group is made up of all Iranian immigrants. You believe that your mom found out about some other illegal activity that was happening. What did you start noticing and, and what avenues did that take you down? There were several things I noticed. Um, so it's really hard to come from Iran to the United States. And I noticed that people were coming in two at a time. So, and I don't know how to quite explain that, but you know, when you're traveling from a country where it's difficult to migrate to the United States, and you only have two people with the same name, you don't expect them to come to the United States at about the same time. Nor would you expect them to have the approximate date of birth or share a commonality in their date of birth. And I thought that that was alarming. Is what you're saying is someone would come over using a name and a birthday or it, maybe that's their real identity. Mm -hmm. And are you saying someone else would later come over with the same name and birthday? Is that what you're... Or a similar date of birth. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, what I was told is that it was something that was happening um, and that it could happen in multiple ways. Either a person could have access to a person's passport or that they could go to the... Um, birth certificate office in Iran and recreate all the paperwork for a person that is actually a U.S. citizen. So to be clear, the 
the a person coming in would be the citizen. They would be the ones that have the okay to come to the United States. And then a second person would use their identity with some changes to come to the United States as well. What alarmed me was these are really unique names. I mean, it's not like Kim Smith. <laughs> so when you have two people with um, not common names coming to the United States within months of each other, and not only do they have the same name, but they have very similar dates of births, you gotta kind of pay attention to that. Now, I don't have access to immigration documents. I don't know if it's real or not. What I do know is that coming from a country where it's difficult to migrate from and then seeing that kind of pattern forming is a problem. How does that connect to your mom? Well, I think my mom found out about different things that were happening, this being one of them, but that the combination of the things that we're seeing happening within this group would have been a problem for my mom. What kind of person was she? I mean, if she would have found out about illegal activity, would she have called the police? What do you think she would have done with that information? Well, you know, I think my mom was very naive because none of us ever think that someone's going to murder us, right? Mm -hmm. And I think my mom would have first and foremost confronted them about what she found out and asked that they stop or... Um, at least have a discussion, even though that seems very naive. You can't, you know, you don't tell people, hey, it's a bad idea that you're doing this or it needs to stop. Um, but I could see my mom doing something like that. And there is indication that, although we don't know if she approached a group, there is indication that she was being threatened. But you believe this group of people were involved in that somehow and you've connected that to them? Well, it was by investigating them that I stumbled onto it. That's probably all you can say about that at this point. Yeah. This, this investigation, though, you, maybe you can talk about this. Um, this investigation is taking you all over the country, though. You've talked to people all over the place, officials mm -hmm. um, at different uh, agencies. Oh, my God. I've done so many <laughs> interviews. Um, I think uh, Renee brought in an immigration consultant just to kind of review stuff that I was seeing to get his take on it. Um, I actually did a lot of internet searches and found an, a recent article on what I was seeing. It wasn't from Iran, it was coming out of the Hungarian embassy. The Washington Post had done an article on exactly what I noticed. Um, and then I spoke with a lot of Iranians, including flying down to uh, San Diego and speaking with an Iranian woman over there who had, um, who knew, who had information about what was going on. So, yeah. The article Pune is talking about is from May of 2018. The Washington Post headline reads, Massive passport fraud in Hungary allowed dozens of people to enter the U.S. under false identities. The article says, quote, About 700 non-Hungarians have fraudulently obtained authentic Hungarian passports and assumed the identities of the original passport holders, end quote. 
the reasons, according to an expert cited in the article, drug smuggling, organized crime, or illegal immigration. Now, there is a lot more to what Pune and her attorneys uncovered in regards to potential passport fraud and the group of people they believe killed Effie. But because they're actively collecting documents and evidence to support this theory, they aren't able to say anything else on the record, at least for right now. This brings us to Pune's theory on the second possible motive, money. She says she was finally able to really flesh out this motive just recently. She already knew her mom had been loaning money to the group she suspected in the murder. And Effie had more than $20,000 in a secret bank account that disappeared after her death. My mom had an account that she'd been saving for a really long time. It was money Effie had squirreled away before her divorce from Mike. Money she didn't want him to get in the divorce, so she kept it in an account he didn't know about. When she was depositing money into this account every single month, that money ended up being about $23,000, which is quite a bit of money back in 1989 when you could buy a house for $50,000. It's a lot of money today, even. And it's a lot of money today. I was able to trace it up until... Um, so my mom pulled the money out in a cashier's check to 23000 in August of 1988. And in November of 1988, so three months, uh, three or so months before her homicide, she deposits it into another CD account. Pune didn't discover the secret account until after Effie's death. But when Pune went to the bank to inquire about the money... Money's gone. By the time I realized that that account even existed. Someone had closed the account shortly after Effie's death. Pune's never been able to figure out who closed it or where the money went. There was no records left of it and the account had been shut down. My mom had been saving that for almost a decade. She's not gonna spend $23,000 in the three months preceding her homicide. Now, Pune had discovered all of this years ago, but it wasn't until a warm September morning in 2020 that a motive surrounding money really started to make sense to her. She was sitting in her home office, surrounded by folders packed with documents and crates of information related to the case. She was sorting through some of her mom's things, items that once belonged in Effie's purse. Pune pushed aside a pack of big red gum, Effie's favorite, along with a few quarters and stamps. That's when she happened upon some receipts. Now, Pune had glanced at these receipts several times over the years, but this was the first time she noticed something odd. A receipt for a purchase paid for with Effie's credit card. But the signature at the bottom was not Effie's. It belonged to Frank Doe. Once I started looking into that and we started interviewing people we at stores that my mom had shopped at for her business, uh, we found out that she had engaged in a business deal prior to her homicide um, as early as six months, seven months before her homicide. It, like I said, nobody knew about this. and. Um, of course, the people didn't say anything about it. They stayed quiet. At the time of the investigation. At the time of my mom's murder. homicide. 
For now, Pune won't share publicly what type of business she believes Effie was establishing at the risk of harming a potential criminal investigation. But the information Pune has uncovered points to the likelihood that Effie had entered into some sort of business deal with Frank and Jane Doe before her death, which would explain why Frank's signature was on that receipt. So you believe your mom knowingly agreed, agreed to go into business with this group of people, maybe thinking that she would um, be partners in a sense or be part of the business, correct? You know, it's... The, the evidence shows that she thought she was the full owner of the business, not that it was a partnership, and that there was every intent of taking over this business, but she was killed. So uh, that came to a stop. What would have been their motive? Why would they kill Effie over a business? There was cl a clear financial gain. Pune's attorney, Renee Rothage, also couldn't give much detail about the case they've put together against this group. But this is what she would say on the record. Yeah, this case is very challenging because, as I mentioned, the investigation is ongoing. There are a lot, there's law enforcement involved, and we are finding new information, it seems like, every day. We still are expecting more people will come forward with more information from us but every time we learn a new piece of information it fits you know it it, it creates this picture the big picture that I think we are confident saying is that there was a group of people that she was associated with that were involved in activities that were illegal um, there was certainly motivation financially to to kill her but I think the picture is not as, it's not complete. We are still learning more every day. There is one last detail they've learned that I can tell you. It's about Frank and Jane Doe and how they seem to have benefited after Effie's death. It's one of those loose ends that might just finally be tied up. You'll recall how in the hours after Effie's murder, when detectives first made contact with Mike, they kept him under surveillance from the time he left the hospital in Portland to his attorney's office in Vancouver. But they stopped surveilling Mike for maybe an hour at that point. They say that the car was under surveillance most of the time, but that they had uh, calls coming in, so they left for about an hour. So the car was left unprotected for that hour. At the same time, my father sees the group that we have now found out that my mom was engaged in a, a business deal with at that law firm. That's when Pune believes Frank and Jane Doe planted the gun in Mike's car when he was in his attorney's office and his car was not under police surveillance. Later, my dad and his attorney left and were followed by police to our home and the police decided to research my dad's car. And as soon as they opened up the car door, there was a gun. But it doesn't end there. She says she has proof that Jane and Frank Doe were in the same building as Mike that day because the two had just signed documents to acquire Effie's new business. What have you found out about the group being at that building that day? They were 
signing documents related to the business deal that we believe my mom had gotten involved in. The day of her murder, they, they signed documents on that the business? The afternoon of her murder, yes. They were solidifying the business deal and they just happened to be at the law firm that my father was taken in, uh, taken to, right? I mean, that's not a coincidence. Did the other people then end up taking control or taking over this business at that point? Did they have a financial gain after she died? Yes, they did. And yes, they did. I mean, yeah, they took over. This is the beginning of the end. Next time on The Yellow Car. Have you ever seen a case like this? No, this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of case. Was there a time, Puya, that you wondered whether your dad did do it? I always thought he had nothing to do with it because he couldn't hurt a fly. What do you hope happens now that you have this DNA evidence? We hope for an arrest, and then we hope that the shooter then describes what happened and explains why he did it. Do you have a message for the people you believe and Pune believes did this? Do you have a message for this group of people? Your time is coming and justice will be served. The Yellow Car is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff. <laughs>